Number two, another instance of Erastianism practiced by both church and state is that when the king and parliament did bind down Episcopal curates upon congregations, forbidding church courts the exercise of discipline upon the impenitent, and enjoining, enjoining the assembly to admit such without any evidence of grief or sorrow for their former apostasy, upon their swearing the oath of allegiance and subscribing a formula homologating the revolution settlement, substituted in the room of the covenants, the church approved of this settlement and protection granted by the civil powers to such curates all their lifetime in their churches and benefices, who yet were not brought under any obligation to subject themselves to the government and discipline of the church. The truth of this is manifest from sundry of King William's letters to the assemblies, together with after acts of parliament relative thereto. In his letter, dated February 13, 1690, to the commission of the assembly, he says, quote, Whereas there has been humble application made to us by several ministers, for themselves and others, who lately served under episcopacy, we have thought good to signify our pleasure to you that you make no distinction of men otherwise well qualified for the ministry, though they have formally conformed to the law, introducing episcopacy, and that ye give them no disturbance or vexation for that cause or for that head. And it is our pleasure that until we give our further directions, you proceed to no more process or any other business. Close quote. In another letter, dated June 15, 1691, he says, quote, We are well pleased with what you write to unite with such of the clergy who have served under episcopacy, and that you are sufficiently instructed by the General Assembly to receive them, from all which we do expect a speedy and happy success that there shall be so great a progress made in this union betwixt you before our return to Britain that we shall then find no cause to continue that stop which at present we see necessary, and that neither you nor any commission or church meeting do meddle in any process or business that may concern the purging out of the Episcopal ministers. Close quote. And in a letter to the Episcopal clergy, he says, quote, We doubt not of your applying to and concurring with your brethren, the Presbyterian ministers, in the terms which we have been at pains to adjust for you. The formula will be communicated to you by our commissioners. Close quote, etc. See also the 27th Act, Parliament, 1695, where it is declared, quote, that all such as shall duly come in and qualify themselves shall have and enjoy His Majesty's protection as to their respective kirks and beneficences. They all is containing them themselves within the limits of their pastoral charge, within their said parishes, without offering to exercise any part of government unless they first be duly assumed by a competent church court, providing nevertheless that as the said ministers are left free to apply or not to the foresaid church courts, and etc. Close quote. To which agree Act Second Parliament, 1700, Act 3rd Parliament, 1702, Act 2nd Parliament, 1703, etc. Behold here the civil magistrate exercising the supremacy in matters ecclesiastical, in that he both establishes the old Scots curates in their respective parishes upon their former footing, limits them in the exercise of their function, discharging them from exercising any part of ecclesiastical polity, but upon their uniting with the Presbyterians on the terms he had adjusted for them. And further, by his authority, stops the exercise of church discipline against these curates, though the most of them were notoriously scandalous, nay, even discharges the assembly from proceeding to any other business until they received other directions from the throne, which palpable instance of Erastianism in the state was not only peaceably submitted to, but hardly acquiesced in by the church. 
therefore, as they had declared they would censure no prelatical incumbent for his principles anent church government, however much disaffected to a covenanted reformation, and had given frequent discoveries of their readiness to receive into communion the Episcopal curates, according to the terms prescribed by the Parliament, as appears from the Assembly records. So, the Assembly, 1694, Act 11th, having framed a sham formula for receiving in the curates, containing no such thing as any renunciation of abjured prelacy, the abominable test, and other sinful oaths these creatures had taken, but only an acknowledgment of the revolution settlement of religion as established by law, by the foresaid act, appointed their commission to receive all the Episcopal clergy who applied, and being qualified according to law, would also subscribe their formula, and that without requiring the least show of repentance for their scandalous public sins and their deep guilt of effusion of the blood of God's faithful saints and witnesses during the tyranny of the two brothers. These instructions to the commission and other courts, as appears by their acts, were successively renewed by the assembly upward of twenty times, from 1694 to 1716, and were indeed attended with good success, as is evident from their address to the Queen recorded, Act 10, 1712, where they declare as an instance of their moderation, quote, that since the revolution there had been taken in and continued hundreds of the Episcopal curates upon the easiest terms, close quote, such as were by the royal prerogative adjusted to them. Which practice, as it declares this church homologators of Erastianism, so is directly opposite to Presbyterian principle, the discipline and practice of our Reformed Church of Scotland, and to the laws of Christ, the supreme lawgiver. Ezekiel 44, 10 through 15, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, 18, etc. Number three. A third instance of the Erastianism practice since the Revolution is that the King and Parliament have taken upon themselves to prescribe and lay down by magistratical authority conditions and qualifications sine qua non of ministers and preachers, for proof of which see Acts 6, Session 4th, Parliament 1st, 1693, where it is enacted, quote, that the said oath of allegiance be sworn the same with the, afore- with the foresaid assurance, be subscribed by all preachers and ministers of the gospel, whatever, certifying such of the foresaid persons as are or shall be in any public office, and shall own and exercise the same without taking the said oath and assurance in matter foresaid. Ministers provided to Kirk shall be deprived of their benefices or stipends, and preachers shall be punished with banishment or otherwise as the council shall think fit. Also, Act 23, 1693, it is ordained, quote, that no person be admitted or continued to be a minister or preach within this church unless that he have first taken and subscribed the oath of allegiance and subscribed the oath of assurance in manner appointed. And further statute and ordain that uniformity of worship be observed by all the said ministers and preachers, as the same are at present performed and allowed therein, or shall hereafter be declared by the authority of the same, and that no minister or preacher be continued and admitted hereafter, unless that he subscribe to observe and do actually observe the foresaid uniformity. Close quote. The Erastianism in these acts seems screwed up yet a little higher by Act 7th, Session 5th, Parliament 1st, 1695, 
where, after appointing a new day to such ministers as have not formally obeyed, it is ordained, quote, with certification that such of the said ministers as shall not come in between and said day are hereby and by the force of this present act ipso facto deprived of their respective kirks and stipends and the same declared vacant without any further sentence. Close quote. Erastianism in these acts is so manifest at first sight that it is needless to illustrate the same. Only it may be remarked that by these acts the civil magistrate prescribes new ministerial qualifications, viz. the oath of allegiance and assurance, and these impose, instead of an oath of allegiance to Zion's king, viz. the oath of the covenants. As also that ministers are hereby restricted from advancing reformation, being bound down to observe that uniformity at present allowed, or that shall hereafter be declared by authority of Parliament. And further, Erastianism is here advanced to the degree of wrestling the keys of government out of the hands of the Church altogether, taking to themselves the power of deposing all such ministers as shall not submit to their anti-Christian impositions, and of declaring and ascertaining by their own authority what mode of worship or government shall take place in the Church hereafter. This Erastian appointment of ministerial qualifications, etc., is evidently injurious both to the headship of Christ in his church and to the church's intrinsic power. It pertains to the royal prerogative of Christ to appoint all the qualifications of his officers, which he has done in the word. And it pertains to the church representative by applying the laws of Christ in his word to declare who are qualified for the ministry and who are not. But here the civil power, without any regard to church judicatories, by a magisterial authority, judges and determines the qualifications that gospel ministers must have. Otherwise, they cannot be acknowledged ministers of this church. At the same time, it must be regretted that the church, instead of faithfully discovering the sinfulness of foresaid conduct and testifying against it as an anti-Christian usurpation, have declared their approbation thereof by taking the above-named illimited oaths according to the Parliament's order and also by the assemblies in joining their commission to act commission to act conform to the Parliament's directions respecting ministerial qualifications in their admission of those that had formerly conformed to episcopacy and refusing to admit any into the communion without having these ministerial qualifications. Number four. A fourth piece of Erastianism exercised since the commencement of the Revolution Settlement, against which the Presbytery testify, is the civil magistrate, by himself and his own authority, without consulting the Church or any but his Parliament, Privy Council, and diocesan bishops, in his appointing diets and causes of public fasting and thanksgiving. A number of instances might here be condescended on. So, an act of the States, Anno 1689, for public thanksgiving. An act of Parliament, 1693, appointing a monthly fast, declares, quote, that their majesties, with advice and consent of the said estates of Parliament, do hereby command and appoint that a day of solemn fasting and humiliation be religiously and strictly observed by all persons within this kingdom, both in church and meeting houses, upon the third Thursday of the month of May, and the third Thursday of every month thereafter until intimation of forbearance be made by the lords of their majesty's privy council, and ordains all ministers to read these presents a Sunday before each of these fast days, 
nominated by authority, and ordains all disobeyers to be fined in a sum, and every minister who shall not obey to be processed before the lords of their majesty's privy council. Close quote. But it is to no purpose to multiply instances of this kind, seeing it has been the common practice of every sovereign since the Revolution to appoint and authorize national diets of fasting with civil pains annexed. And as the state has made these encroachments upon the royalties of Christ, so this church, instead of bearing faithful testimony against the same, have finally submitted thereto. In agreeableness to the royal appointment, they observe the monthly fast for the success of the war against Louis the Fourteenth, of which above, and in favor of the Pope, which King William was bound to prosecute by virtue of a covenant made with the Allies at the Hague, February 1691, to be seen in the declaration of war then made against France, wherein it is expressly stated that, quote, no peace is to be made with Louis the Fourteenth till he has made reparation to the Holy See for whatsoever he has acted against it, until he make void all these infamous proceedings, viz. of the Parliament of Paris, against the Holy Father, Innocent Eleven. Behold here the acknowledgement of the Pope's supremacy and his power and dignity, both as a secular and ecclesiastical prince. And in the observance of these facts, the Church did immediately pray for success to the man of sin, a practice utterly repugnant to Protestant, much more to Presbyterian principles, and which will be a lasting stain upon both church and state. As this church did then submit, so since she has made a resignation and surrender of that part of the church's intrinsic right to the civil power. See Act 7th, Assembly 1710. Quote, all ministers and members are appointed religiously to observe all fasts and thanksgivings, whatever, appointed by the church or supreme magistrate and the respective judic judicatories are appointed to take particular notice of the due observation of this and Act 4th, 1722, Act 5th, 1725, close quote. From which acts it is manifest that the Revolution Church has not only declared the power and right of authoritative indicting public fasts and thanksgivings for ordinary, even in a constituted settled national church, to belong at least equally to the civil magistrate as to the church but by their constant practice have undeniably given up the power of the same to the civil power altogether, it being fact that she never, by her own power, appoints a national diet of fasting, but still applies to the king for the nomination thereof. And further, as a confirmation of this surrender, it appears from their public records that when some members have protested against the observation of such diets, the assembly would neither receive nor record such protests. Now the sinfulness of this Erastian practice still persisted in is evident from the scriptures of truth, where the glorious king of Zion assigns the power of appointing fasts, not to the civil magistrate, but to spiritual office-bearers in his house. Jeremiah 13.18 Say unto the king and queen, Humble yourselves. Here is the office of the prophets of the Lord, to enjoin humilia humiliation work upon those that are in civil authority. Contrary to the present practice, when kings and queens usurping the sacred office by their authority say to ministers, Humble yourselves. See also Joel chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 and chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 compared with Numbers chapter 10 verses 8 through 10. 
Here whatever pertains to these solemnities is entrusted to and required of the ministers of the Lord without the intervention of civil authority. The same is imported in Matthew 16, verse 19, and 18, verse 18, John 20, verse 23, it being manifestly contained in the power of the keys committed by the church's head to ecclesiastical officers. Moreover, this Erastianism flowing from a spiritual supremacy exercised over the church is peculiarly aggravated by these particulars. 1. That commonly these fasts have been appointed on account of wars in which the nations were engaged in conjunction with gross anti-Christian idolaters who have been most active in their endeavors to root out Protestantism. Now it cannot but be most provoking to the majesty of heaven for professed Presbyterians to observe fasts the professed design of which includes success to the interests of the avowed enemies of our glorious Redeemer. Again, the above practice is aggravated from this consideration that these diets of fasting with civil pains annexed to them are sent by public proclamation directed to their sheriffs and other subordinate civil officers who are authorized to dispatch them to the ministers and expect, inspect their observation thereof. And while professed ministers of Christ tamely comply with all this, it amounts to no less than a base subjection of the worship of God in the solemnity of fasting in a national way to the arbitrament of the civil powers when whatever time and causes they appoint must be observed. From all which, in the words of the ministers of Perth and Fife and their testimony to the truth, etc., 1658, the presbytery testify against the above Erastian conduct as being in its own nature introductory to greater encroachments and putting into the hands of the civil powers the modeling of the worship of God and things most properly ecclesiastical. Another piece of Erastianism respecting the present administration, which the Presbytery testify against, is the King and Parliament are arbitrarily imposing several of their acts and statutes upon ministers and preachers under ecclesiastical pains and censures. While this Revolution Church, by their silent submission and compliance therewith, have at least interpretatively given their consent thereto. Thus, as the oaths of allegiance and assurance were enjoined upon all in ecclesiastical office under the pain of church censure of which above, so likewise Acts 6.17.06 ordains, quote, that no professors and principals bearing office in any university be capable or be admitted to continue in the exercise of their said functions, but such as shall own the civil government in manner prescribed or to be prescribed by Acts of Parliament, close quote in consequence of which there is an Act 1707, an Act in the first year of King George I, and another in the fifth year of his reign, by all which statutes ecclesiastical persons are enjoined to take the oath of abjuration with the other oaths under the pain of having ecclesiastical censures inflicted upon them. And they ordain that no person be admitted to trials or licensed to preach until they have taken the public oaths on pain of being disabled. The foresaid act in the fifth year of George I ordains all ministers and preachers to pray and express words for his majesty and the royal family as in former acts. The king and parliament at their own hand prescribe a set form of prayer for the Church of Scotland and that under Erastian penalties upon the disobeyers. Again, by an act of 1737, framed for the more effectual bringing to justice the murderers of Captain Porteous, it is enacted Quote, that this act shall be read in every parish church throughout Scotland 
on the first Lord's Day of every month for one whole year, from the first day of August, 1737, by the minister of the parish, in the morning, immediately before the sermon. And, in case such ministers shall neglect to read this act, as is here directed, he shall, for the first offense, be declared incapable of sitting or voting in any church judicatory, and for the second offense, be declared incapable of taking, holding, or enjoying any ecclesiastical benefice in that part of Great Britain called Scotland. Close quote. The Erastianism of this act is very plain. The penalties thereof are ecclesiastical and infer a kind of deposition. Seeking the disobeyers are hereby disabled from exercising and enjoying what is essential to their office. Moreover, the wickedness of this act appears in that it was appointed to be read on the Sabbath day and in time of divine service, whereby ministers being constituted the magistrates' heralds to proclaim this act were obliged to profane the Lord's day and corrupt his worship by mixing human inventions therewith, which was directly a framing mischief into a law. Yet with all these impositions above noticed, this church has generally complied, and thereby declared that they are more studious of pleasing and obeying men than God, seeing their practice therein infers no less than a taking instructions in the ministerial function and matters of divine worship from another head than Christ. The last piece of Erastian administration in church and state the presbytery take notice of and testify against is that of patronages. When the Parliament 1690 had changed the form of patronages by taking the power of presentations from patrons and lodging it in the hands of such heritors and elders as were qualified by law, excluding the people from a vote in calling their ministers, this Erastian act, spoiling the people of their just privilege, was immediately embraced by the church, as is evident from their overtures for church discipline, 1696, where they declare that only heritors and elders have a proper right to vote in the nomination of a minister. Also, their overtures, 1705 and 1719, do lodge the sole power of nomination of ministers in the hands of a majority of heritors by giving them a negative over the eldership and congregation. But, as if this had not been a sufficient usurpation of the people's right, purchased to them by the blood of Christ by an act of Parliament, 1712, the above act, 1690, is repealed, and patrons fully restored to all their former anti-Christian powers over the heritage of the Lord, which yoke still continues to oppress the people of God. While again this church, as if more careful to please the court and court parasites than Christ and his people, have not only peaceably fallen in with this change, daily practicing it in planting vacant congregations, but, as fond of this child of Rome, have further established and confirmed the power of patrons by the sanction of their authority, as appears from several acts of assembly, thereby declaring their resolutions to have this epidemic evil continued, though it should terminate in the utter ruin of the church. Patronage was always, by the Church of Scotland since the Reformation, accounted an intolerable yoke, and therefore she never ceased contending against it, until it was last utterly abolished by acts both of reforming assemblies and parliaments, and that is one of the inventions of the whore of Rome. As this anti-Christian practice was unknown to the church in her primitive and purest times, until gradually introduced with other popish corruptions, so it has not the least vestige of any warrant in the word of truth, nay, is directly opposite thereto and to the apostolical practice, Acts 1, 15-24, chapter 6, 2-7, 
as also chapter 14, verse 23, and chapter 16, verse 9, with other passages therein. A book intended to give us the apostolical practice and pattern in the settlement of the Christian church. And 2 Corinthians 3, 19, etc. Wherefore the presbytery testify against this Erastian usurpation as most sinful in itself, most injurious to the church of Christ, and inconsistent with the great ends of the ministry and against this church, for not only submitting unto, but even promoting this wickedness, which is evident from her deposing some of her members, for no other reason but because they could not approve of this pernicious scheme. Witness Mr. Gillespie, Minister Carnock, who was deposed May 1752, and against all violent intruders, who, not entering by the door, can be regarded only as thieves and robbers. John 10, 1. These are a few of the many instances of the Erastian usurpations of the headship of Christ as a son in and over his own house and of the church's intrinsic power assumed by the state and consented to by this church since the revolution. Footnote. Besides the above instances of that unholy, tyrannical, and church-robbing policy which has been exercised by the supreme civil powers in these nations with reference to religion and the worship of God, all of which existed when the Presbytery first published their testimony, there has of late a very singular instance of the same kind occurred in the course of administration which the Presbytery cannot forbear to take notice of, but must embrace the present opportunity to declare their sense of and testify against, and especially as it is one that carries a more striking evidence than any of the former of our public national infidelity and licentiousness and of our being judicially infatuated in our national councils and given up of heaven to proceed from evil to worse in the course of apostasy from the cause and principle of the Reformation. We particularly mean the instance of a late bill or act which has been agreed upon by both houses of Parliament and which also June 1774 was sanctioned with the royal assent entitled An Act for Making More Effectual Provision for the Government of the Province of Quebec in North America, by which act not only is French despotism or arbitrary power settled as the form of civil government, but which, still worse, popery, the religion of Antichrist, with all its idolatries and blasphemies, has such security and establishment granted it as to be taken immediately under the legal protection of the supreme civil authority of these nations in that vast and extensive region of Canada, lately added to the British dominions of North America, a province so large and fertile that it is said to be capable of containing, if fully peopled, not less than 30 millions of souls. This infamous and injurious bill, before it passed into a law, was publicly reprobated and declaimed against by sundry members of both houses. It has been petitioned and remonstrated against by the most respectable civil body, incorporated in Britain, or its dominions, the City of London, by all the provinces of North America, south of Quebec, and even by the inhabitants of the city of Quebec itself. It has been, in the most public manner, in open Parliament, declared to be a most, quote, a most cruel, oppressive, and odious measure, a child of inordinate power, close quote, etc., all which are sufficient indications how scandalous, offensive, and obnoxious this act was. There was afterward, in the month of May 1775, a bill brought into the House of Lords in order to effectuate the repeal of the foresaid disgraceful act, when in the course of public debate it was represented by those few members of the House who appeared in the opposition as, quote, one of the most destructive, most despotic, most nefarious acts that ever passed the House of Peers, close quote. But all in vain. The repeal could not be effected. 
And moreover, let it be further observed there, observed here, that the bench of bishops in the House of Peers who assume the anti-Christian title of spiritual lords and pretend to claim a seat in Parliament for the care of religion during the whole course of this contest instead of appearing for the Protestant interest have to their lasting infamous infamy publicly distinguished themselves in opposition to it by standing forth the avowed supporters of popery. The Presbytery therefore find themselves in duly in duty obliged in their ju judicative capacity principally in behalf of the rights and interests of the great God and of his Son Jesus Christ our Redeemer, that is to say, in behalf of the rights of truth, true religion, and righteousness among men, which he ever owns as his, to add, as they hereby do, their public testimony against this nefarious national deed so manifestly injurious to all these. The Presbytery do not, as some others, found their testimony against this extravagant act establishing popery, etc., in Canada, solely or simply on its injuriousness to the private interests of men, their bodily lives, goods, or outward privileges. Nor do they, do they declare against and condemn it merely because that religion, which is sanctioned with this national decree and engagement for its defense, is a sanguinary one, has deluged our island in blood, and dispersed impiety, persecution, and murder, etc., through the world. See an address from the General Congress to the people of Great Britain. These are all, indeed, incontestable proofs that it is not the religion of the divine Jesus, but of Antichrist. Nevertheless, the same have been known to be the staple and constant fruits of prelacy, too, which, to the extent of its reach and influence, has as much Christian blood wrapped in, up in its skirts as popery, if not more. Nor yet is it merely on account that it is greatly injurious, as indeed it is, and a notorious breach of the public faith to the British Protestant settlers in that province. The Presbytery's particular objections against this extraordinary measure are of a different quality. They are briefly such as follows. 1. The iniquity of it against God. It is certainly a deed highly provoking and dishonoring to the God of heaven. For one, it is a giving that public protection and countenance to a lie, i.e., to idolatry and false worship, and to anti-Christian idolatry, the worst of all other, which is only due to the truth of God. It is a devoting and giving our national power to the preservation of the life of the Romish beast after the deadly wound given it by the Reformation. And therefore, two, a most wretched prostitution of the ordinance of civil power sacred by its divine institution, to be a terror and restraint to evildoers, and a praise to them that do well, Romans 8, to the quite contrary purposes. What right have open idolaters and blasphemers to be protected and supported by any ordinance of God in the public acts of their idolatry? And how awful it is to think that it is a setting ourselves openly to fight against God in a national engagement to support and defend what God has declared and testified to us in his word he will have destroyed, and wherein he expressly forbids giving the least countenance to idolatry. And shall we thus harden ourselves against God and prosper? As this last instance of our profane national policy is a still more open discovery of our incorrigibleness in our apostasy, so it is, also, the most striking of all the former of that Erastianism and spiritual supremacy exercised by the civil powers in these lands over the church and kingdom of Christ. Herein we have an open and avowed justification of that anti-scriptural right and power claimed by them to settle and establish whatever mode of religion they please, 
or is most agreeable to the inclinations of the people, or which best answers their worldly political purposes, although it should be the religion of Satan in place of that of Christ. This has been the great leading principle all along since the Revolution, but never more openly discovered than in this instance. Upon all which it may appear, how sinful and provoking to the divine majesty this act must be. Number two. The folly and shamefulness of it as to ourselves. How disgraceful and dishonorable is this public act in favor of popery, even to the nation itself and its representatives who are the authors of it. How palpably inconsistent is it with our national character and profession as Protestant, and with our national establishment, civil and ecclesiastical, both which are professedly built upon reformation from popery, to come to take that idolatrous religion under our national protection and become defenders of the anti-Christian faith. Nay, were it competent for the presbytery as a spiritual court and spiritual watchman to view this act in a civil light, they might show at large that it is a violation of the fundamental national constitutions of the kingdom and reaches a blow to the credit of the legal security granted to the Protestant religion at home. We need not here mention how contrary this act is to the fundamental laws and constitutions of the kingdom of Scotland, which are now set aside, but it is contrary to and a manifest violation of the revolution and British constitution itself contrary to the claim of right, yea, to the oath solemnly sworn by every English and British sovereign upon their accession to the throne, as settled by an act of the English Parliament in the first year of William III, by which they are obliged to, quote, profess, and to the utmost of their power maintain, in all their dominions, the laws of God, the true profession of the gospel, and the true reformed religion established by law, close quote. But these things the Presbytery leave to such whom it may more properly concern. Let it, however, be observed that the Presbytery are not here to be interpreted as approving of the above said oath, as it designedly obliges to the maintenance of the abjured English hierarchy and popish ceremonies, which might better be called a true Reformed lie than the true Reformed religion. Nevertheless, this being the British coronation oath, it clearly determines that all legal establishments behoove to be Protestant, and that, without a violation of said oath, no other religion can be taken under protection of law but what is called Protestant religion only. The Presbytery conclude the whole of this additional remark with an observing that, as in the former instances of the exercise of this Erastian power above mentioned, the present Church of Scotland never gave evidence of her fidelity to Christ so far as to testify against them, so their assembly has, in a like supine, senseless manner, conducted themselves with reference to this last and most alarming instance. Notwithstanding all that has been remonstrated against it, and in favor of the Reformed religion, they have remained mute and silent, which indeed evidences them not to be truly deserving of the character of venerable and reverend, which they assume to themselves, but rather that of an association, or, in the words of the weeping prophet, an assembly of treacherous men, Jeremiah 9.2. Returning to our text. And without condescending upon any more, the Presbytery concludes this part with observing upon the whole that when Henry VIII of England did cast off the authority of the See of Rome 
and refused to give that subjection to the Pope formerly paid by him and his predecessors, he did at the same time assume to himself all that power in his dominions with the po- which the Pope formerly claimed, and soon afterward procured to have himself acknowledged and declared by act of Parliament to be head of the Church, head over all persons, and in all cases, in all causes, civil and ecclesiastical. And which anti-Christian supremacy has ever since continued an essential part of the English Constitution and inherent right of the crown, so that all the crowned heads there have ever since been as little popes over that realm, and that all such still appropriate unto themselves that blasphemous anti-Christian title of the head of the church and supreme judge in all causes is undeniably evident from the known laws and canons of England, and further appears from a declaration made by King George I, June 13, 1715, where he styles himself Defender of the Faith and Supreme Governor of the Church in his dominions, declaring that before the clergy can order or settle any differences about the external policy of the Church, they must first obtain leave under his broad seal so to do. Which title or authority for man or angel to assume is a downright dethroning and excoriating of Christ, the only and alone head and supreme governor of his church. From this spiritual anti-Christian supremacy granted by English laws to the King of England, confirmed and established by virtue of the incorporating union in British kings by acts of British Parliament, do flow all the forementioned acts imposed upon the Revolution Church of Scotland. And as these acts and laws declare that the British monarch confines not his spiritual supremacy to the Church of England, but it extends it also over the Church of Scotland. So this Revolution Church, having neither ever judicially or practically lifted up the standard of a public, free, and faithful testimony against these sinful usurpations, flowing from the fountain of said supremacy, and clothed with the authority of an anti-Christian parliament, where abjured bishops sit constituent members, but, on the contrary, has submitted to every one of them. Therefore, this church may justly be constructed as approvers and maintainers of Erastian supremacy. And hereby, indeed, the revolt of these degenerate lands from their sworn subjection and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, as supreme in his own house, is completed, when they have these many years substituted another in his place and framed supremacy into a standing law to be the rule according to which their kings must must lord it over the house and heritage of the living God. Again, the Presbytery testify against the manifold and almost uninterrupted opposition to the ancient glorious uniformity in religion between the nations that has appeared in the the administrations of both church and state since the last revolution. The revolution, constitution, and settlement of religion, as has been already observed, laid our solemn covenants and work of reformation, sworn to therein, in a grave. And many stones have since been brought and cast upon them. Many ways and measures have both church and state taken to make sure the revolution's sepulcher of a covenanted work of reformation and prevent, if possible, its further resurrection, against all which the presbytery judged themselves bound to lift up their testimony. Particularly, one, the Presbytery testify against the incorporating union of this nation with England, and as being a union founded upon an open violation of all the articles of the Solemn League and Covenant still binding upon the nations, and consequently destructive of that uniformity in religion, once happily attained to by them, which will at first view appear by comparing the articles of the union with those of the Solemn League. 
All associations and confederacies with the enemies of true religion and godliness are expressly condemned in Scripture and represented as dangerous to the true Israel of God. Isaiah 6.12, Jeremiah 2.28, Psalm 106.35, Hosea 5.13, and 7, 8, 11, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, 15. And if simple confederacies with malignants and enemies to the cause of Christ are condemned, much more is an incorporation with them, which is an embodying of two into one, and therefore a straighter conjunction. And taking the definition of malignants given by the declaration of both kingdoms joined in arms, Anno 1643, to be just, which says, quote, such as would not take the covenant were declared to be public enemies to their religion and country, and that they are to be censured and punished as professed adversaries and malignants, close quote. It cannot be refused, but that the prelatical party in England now joined with are such. Further, by this incorporating union, this nation is obliged to support the idolatrous Church of England, agreeable whereto the Scottish Parliament in their act of security relative to the Treaty of Union declares, quote, that the Parliament of England may provide for the security of the Church of England as they think expedient, close quote. Accordingly, the English Parliament, before entering upon the Treaty of Union with Scotland, framed an act for securing the Church of England's hierarchy and worship as by law established which act they declare, quote, shall be inserted in express terms in any act of Parliament which shall be made for settling and ratifying any treaty of union and shall be declared to be an essential, fundamental part thereof, close quote. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.